Hello and welcome to the Gold Prospecting Network. Today we will be speaking with Richard Whitner, President of the Caribou Mining Association and longtime prospector, about regulation changes in the BC mining industry and the work the Caribou Mining Association is doing for prospectors. So Richard, welcome to the program. I uh, just wanted to have a chat with you and discuss everything that's going on in, in the mining industry in BC in general and, and around North America. The CNC was born in 1952 and was originally started to aid both hard rock and placer miners. We've since changed gears, and we uh, predominantly uh, just work with the placer industry now. In 1989, the uh, CMA became a nonprofit society under the leadership of my friend Stan Begunder, who's actually still a director today. Um, during that time, they entered into developing what's called the Caribou-Chilcotin Land Use Agreement. This is actually a legislative agreement that all land users developed and gave our sector special privileges, such as only having a 10-meter riparian zone. Uh, other industries, such as logging, have 30 meters and larger. So this is actually legislation, so it's actually law that we're allowed to mine up to that close to the rivers. Uh, the CMA offers power in its numbers. Uh, since I've taken office, we've now grown to over 300 members strong. We're the largest placer association in the province, and more than likely in Canada. Often the CMA is drawn into issues that individual miners are having with government, First Nations, and other large industries such as logging and landowners. We have a really high success rate in working issues out. The Caribou Mining Association works closely with government and protects the placer sector as best we can from new policies and regulations that could harm our industry. A good part of that is education of government. We actually have policy writers in Victoria that have no real idea of what placer sector actually does. For the last two years in a row, we've traveled to Victoria and lobbied for our sector. Another avenue of education is First Nations. For the last four years, we have met with our local First Nations, and we found common ground and educate them on what we really do. This started a First Nations tour of mining sites and we also bring in some local government advisors on the tour. Uh, many are amazed at how little disturbance that we actually do, and they gain a better understanding of our sector. It even started a behind-the-scenes dialogue with one of the bands. They were asking me privately about some of the permits they were consulting on. After our last First Nations meeting last November, it was such a success that the First Nations fans actually want to have biannual meetings with the CMA. One of uh, First Nations' concerns is cumulative effect on the land base with so many operations in a row along the rivers. I developed a Google Earth map where I drew out the area where my father and I had mined for the last six years, and then the area that my partner had mined for the last three years. Then I drew in the neighboring operations up and down the river. I zoomed the map out, and when I zoomed it back, you could only see tiny little dots on the map. But it was really apparent you could still see the vast cut blocks where it had been logged. It really brought it into perspective, the little disturbance that we actually do out in the field. Another educational venue is that we host an annual training session uh, where we invite cross ministries to do training sessions. Our next training session is April 7th and 8th here in Cornell. It's covering the supervisor's tickets, uh, the new code, and what, what elements of it will affect our sector. The developer of the bonding calculator will 
talking about it. And we have the Director of Policy unveiling work being done on the Best Management Practices Guide and some new possible regulations. The second day of training will be done by the local senior First Nations advisor covering the legislative end of First Nations consulting. And if the proponent is actually, actually required to interact directly with First Nations, protocols, setting up contact records, etc. After that, we actually have a local archaeologist covering local First Nations chance finds that she's found here in the Caribou and what we what we should be looking for. <clears throat> this is a very important opportunity to show First Nations that we are doing our due diligence and learning what to look for when we're in the field. We are taking, we're even taking down the participants' um, three minor certificate numbers, and this will be given to government so that if there's a chance of a, a low archaeological chance find, then it will be given the permitting inspector the option of denying a field reconnaissance arc study as the operators will have some idea of what they're looking for. It also looks good on your notice of work application if it's recorded that the proponent has taken this session. The last part of what we do is for educational is the Cornell Gold Show. This is our seventh annual show coming up this year. We have vendors from every aspect of plaster mining and they come from as far away as the Yukon, Alberta, Northern BC, and the Lower Mainland. We have geologists on hand, live demonstrations, cross-government ministries, and celebrity panning events. This gives the public a great chance to look at the opportunities in our sector, <coughs> as well as understanding what we do. We, with over 40 vendors, we are the largest plaster gold show in Canada and we've even grown larger than the Yukon show, completely selling out an indoor vendor space. And yes, we have a waiting list. Excellent. So uh, one of the things you mentioned there, the, the training session coming up on, on April the 7th and the 8th, who is that open to and, and how do they get entry into that session? Um, well, the, they just need to send um, Jackie, our secretary, uh, an email at uh, Caribou Mining Association at hotmail.com just to let them know that they'll be attending. Uh, we do have limited space there. I think um, the building holds 75 people. It's open to um, the public, and it's free of charge. Um, the other uh, last educational piece that we do is our uh, Cornell Gold Show. This is our seventh annual coming up. Um, we have uh, vendors from every aspect in, in gold mining. Um, we have vendors that travel from the Yukon, Alberta, northern BC, and the lower mainland. We've got uh, geologists on hand, uh, live demonstrations. We have uh, cross-government ministries, and we have celebrity panning events at this as well. Um, this gives the public a great chance to look at opportunities in our sector, as well as understanding what we do. With over uh, 40 vendors, we're pretty much the largest gold show in plaster mining gold show in Canada, and I believe we've actually even grown a little bit larger than the Yukon show. Um, we completely sell out all of our indoor vendor space, and we actually have a waiting list. I've seen that every year pop up in the advertisements for it, and I keep thinking to myself, I'm going to make it down one year. This is the year I'm going to do it, and every year something happens and prevents me from getting out there. So <laughs> hopefully the next one I can make, because it's something that I would really, really enjoy going to see. Yep. 
so one of the things that you've done as well is uh, you've been advising government on preventing harmful changes within the province uh, regarding the placer mining industry. How, how difficult is it to maintain those relationships and, and affect change with various governments changing year after year? Okay, well, during my uh, first term as uh, president of the CMA, uh, the government at the time proposed a $4,000 application fee uh, to process our notice of work applications. Um, we hit the decks running and compiled um, uh, 1.5 kilograms of letters against oh. the idea, and uh, we mailed it out to every resource minister. We um, stopped them dead in their tracks, and um, they've never seen such an outcry from our sector. Um, since that time... Um, They've taken the CMA a lot more seriously, and we're now getting requests to be involved in so many meetings that we're actually starting to be selective on which ones we get involved in now. Government is now involving the Caribou Mining Association um, so we can have input on some of their decisions. Um, we've been told by many of the senior uh, government staff that the Caribou Mining Association is now well-respected in government, and we have turned the view around on us about 180 degrees. They appreciate the fact that we have solutions um, to our issues and that we're vocal about it. They also appreciate that we're willing to work with them on the issues that they are facing. This is really a David versus Goliath kind of situation, isn't it? Yes, it is. 300 members versus an entire province, and, and you're, you've managed to get this much respect and, and, and grow to the point where they're now consulting you on things is, is something that doesn't really happen very often. No, it doesn't. That's, that's, that's excellent. Uh, bullet 41, or Bulletin 41, Update 41, I wanted to touch upon that. That's something that's just recently come to light. Um, and I just want to read a little excerpt here from, from that bulletin and get your, your comments on it. For placer exploration, the following list describes the types of placer exploration activities that the province interprets as falling outside the definition of a mine and that are unlikely to cause significant disturbance. These activities can generally be undertaken without a Mines Act permit or a written exemption. So point number one is uh, hand panning with a shovel and or pan only. Hand sluicing consisting of the following, no more than three persons working on a mineral title at any one time. Uh, and another point that I wanted to bring up here was no material is uh, extracted from under the water table or below the level of water in an adjacent water course. So this obviously has piqued a lot of people's interests for a couple of reasons. Number one, um, people are concerned that, well, if I'm working 50, 60 meters away from the water course up on a, on a bench somewhere and all of a sudden I hit the water table, how is that going to affect me? And, and the other thing is no more than three people working at a time on a mineral claim. Uh, it, are people getting mineral claims and placer claims kind of crossed there? Um, and, and is there a real concern with hitting uh, uh, the water table 50, 60 yards away from any body of water? Okay. Uh, first of all, I believe what they're referring to is actually working within uh, a creek or um, in the rivers. I don't believe that they're actually talking about working, you know, if you happen to hit the water table. Um, especially if you're digging outside of the riparian zone because you're not going to directly, you know, affect, you know, by dirtying up the, the stream or the river. Um, so let me just go back a little bit. Um, last April, uh, the CMA was invited to do a panning event at the Minerals North Conference held in Prince George. And um, Mark Messmer, the gold commissioner, was there and was able to talk privately about uh, some of the policies and regulations 
and um, I passed it on to the other associations, and we had uh, three weeks to um, put in anything that we were concerned about or, you know, um, anything that we wanted to see changed on there. And um, I didn't hear back from any other of the other associations, um, so I assumed that everything was okay on it. The reason they changed the... Um, amount of people working on a hand operation stems back to some issues that they faced last year. There was a proponent that uh, put in a, a notice of work application, and I'm not sure what was wrong with it, but he was denied. So basically, he told government what he was doing was he was going in there with um, 20 to 30 hand operators, and they were going to work with, um, with hand sluices. And apparently they did do this, and they created a bit of a mess. Now, what Mark's staff did was is they actually went back through um, all the statement of works filed, and they could not see where on any hand operations that they ever had any more than two to three operators working at one time on a site. So basically, um, as it happens always, uh, you have people that go out there, they... Um, you know, do something against what they're supposed to be doing, and then we get new regulations. So that's why this new regulation was put upon us. And basically the bullet, bullet 41, um, those are the only two changes, really. And um, they, um, they're they just trying to put it into layman's terms what the actual regulations are. So they haven't actually changed any regulations. They've just spelled it out a little more clearly makes a little more sense um it's it's every now and then you see something new coming out from from the mineral titles branch or or uh, another division of the government whether it be department of fisheries and oceans or ministry of environments and people tend to freak out and understandably so because it starts affecting their daily lives it, it affects um their their method of of gaining funds to live and I mean, when I first saw this bulletin, I, I went through it. And like you said, there aren't a whole lot of changes, uh, but these are, these are a couple that did really stick out in my mind. Um, yeah. I recall probably about three years ago now, there was a number of discussions about whether or not small trommels could be used. Um, yeah. and, and there was a lot of confusion over that. And a lot of people were saying, well, I've got a letter from the mines inspector in XYZ area saying it's fine. I don't need a notice of work. And other people are saying, well, no, you do. Here's a letter from the mines inspector in my area saying it's absolutely required. Every now and then, that, that issue seems to pop back up again. And it really does boil down to, I think, who it is you're dealing with. Because some people are saying within the mineral titles branch that, yes, it's fine. Others are saying, absolutely not. If you're caught, you're going to be fined. You're going to be shut down. I actually uh, brought that up uh, at meeting uh, when we met with the gold commissioner there. And I actually wanted that added to bullet 41. Um, he didn't actually even really understand what a trauma was. And uh, when I described that um, he had to use a motor to turn the barrel, then he said no, um, that he wouldn't put that openly out there. But he said um, that he would, of course, keep it the same as it was. And if you could deal with your individual inspector, um, send them pictures, you know, if they can see that it, it can only be hand-fed, that they can get uh, a letter of authorization called a no permit required letter, and then they'd be authorized to, to use it. But uh, 
the um, inspectors out of the Camelot's office, which covers our area here, are open to allowing people to use uh, hand-fed trommels on their sites. I think that was probably the best answer I've gotten in three years of asking about it. And I've asked a lot of people. So thank, thank you for clarifying that a lot. Uh, another point that uh, is a sticking issue with people is, is all these new changes that have happened, aside from Bolton 41, um, the changing governments and so on and so on. How are these changes going to affect prospectors throughout the province? Okay. Um, find my notes here. These um, new changes that are coming out, uh, basically, I don't think it's going to affect necessarily prospectors. It's definitely going to affect uh, machine uh, operations, and some of them are quite profound. Um, basically, since the Mount Pauly breach, it's triggered a, a code review that has changed many of our regulations. Um, these are changes that will affect the plaster. Um, one of them is a new electrical code where the operator must now hire a certified electrician to do all electrical work. And the other one is a certified heavy-duty mechanic. And they have to be uh, hired to do all track and wheeled uh, machines, braking and steering. So this is something that's definitely going to affect uh, our industry. But um, the biggest change is um, from the code review is the new bond calculator that they've come out with. Um, the main concern about this came from the major mining operations, and some of their bonding was 25 years old and older, and if they went bankrupt or just walked away from it, that the government would be left holding the bag. Um, this examination has actually trickled down to all the different mining sectors, and um, change is, is needed, because I've seen so many operations out there that haven't saved topsoil, don't do the reclamation, and they've got old junk lying around rusting on site. The uh, Prince George um, Mining Office was actually saddled with a chore of developing a province-wide bonding calculator for um, mineral exploration, placer, sand, and gravel. Um, it would give the inspectors the power to post high bonds on those that they know aren't compliant and force them to economically do their reclamation. Um, this is a positive change, and um, we need continuity you know, across, um, across the province. It also gives uh, First Nations and the public persona that we're actually held accountable for our actions. Um, we seem to be losing some of our social license since um, the Mount Pauli incident. Uh, the main issue, as I see it, is they've hired an environmental company to compile compile the calculator. Uh, they've set pricing and expectations far beyond reason. Um, they plan on releasing their final version uh, next month to the public. We've uh, actually gone up met several times um, in Prince George uh, with the Emperor office, and we've taken our complaints to the ministers of Victoria. Um, uh, we met with the Deputy Minister and Assistant Deputy Minister of Victoria. We've made some progress and we've actually had some of the items roll back as much as 50%. Wow. Recently, we were just down in Vancouver with a meeting with the Executive Director for EMPER, uh, Director of Policy. We had the Gold Commissioner there. 
uh, Atlam Plaza Association and the president of the East Kootenai Chamber of Mines. And um, we brought up our concerns with the bonding calculator. Um, issues that were brought up were that the inspectors were not doing their jobs ensuring the reclamation was being done in a timely order and that there was not enough training being done with the inspectors and they were not understanding to properly use the calculator. Um, we've seen them doing testing models already and, and some of the bonds are, are just off, off the charts. Um, that the calculator actually allows for double dipping um, as the proponent is actually being charged for bonding on the total area of being disturbed. And then inside of that area of disturbed, they're adding on other disturbances such as your settling ponds, your test pits, your trails, etc. So they're actually double dipping. Um, one of the things we demanded was uh, we wanted proof that government has actually ever spent any money on doing reclamation work. And we also asked the question of what happened to all the bonding money that government has kept and the reclamation was never done. And often whoever picks up the claim afterwards, they go in and they do the, do the reclamation work and the government seems to keep the money. Um, we also uh, demanded proof uh, that the plaster sector was not being compliant. That's, that's a lot of information to take in. Um... Do you have any examples of, of where this is actually, the, the, the new bonding calculator is way out of whack, aside from double dipping? Can, do you have any, any real world uh, examples of, you know, this bond should have been set at around five, ten, fifteen thousand, instead was 30, 40, 50,000? Um, yes, I can use uh, actually an amendment um, that uh, is actually being reviewed right now. Um, and actually, we have a really good working relationship with our um, with our mines inspector. We do what we call progressive reclamation, where uh, our pit, um, once we get in operation, I mean, we never have more than probably half an acre disturbed at any one time before we're putting the topsoil back. And um, our bonding, we're normally bonded for um, two to three hectares of disturbance per year. Uh, we've got a $15,000 bond up, and um, with the new bonding calculator, he actually wants to raise that um, another 10000 so we're going from 15000 to $25,000 um, on, uh, on our amendment. So um, I have firsthand experience on, on what the bonding calculator can do. I also, when meeting with government, what I did was is I actually prepared... Um, the bonding calculator, and I come up with um, some numbers on uh, just a mock um, notice of work application. And we've seen that um, if they follow through on all the items they're talking about filling in, that there's a four to five hundred percent increase on your bonding. This is going to push small operators right out of the industry altogether. It's going to do uh, two things. It's going to push a lot of the small-time operators out. It's also going to tie up a lot of time with the um, permitting inspectors because what they're saying is it opens up the door for communication or dialogue, and it's up to each individual permitting inspector. Well, now he has to take the time out to argue with every notice of work that's being proposed to try and deal with this, and now he's going to have less time with feet on the ground actually out there checking to make sure that um, they're actually doing the work that they're supposed to be doing. The other thing it's going to do, and this is something the government, uh, at least in Victoria, is concerned with,
even go out and uh, apply for uh, a notice of work. They'll just go out there and start working. And um, what we've said to government is, well, if you can't um, keep inspectors, you know, on the ground making sure, you know, where they know where these operations are, then what's going to happen when you have all these guys just going out and they don't even know that they're out there working? Hmm. So a lot of these changes have been around for not too long. A lot of them have been around for, in the works, I guess I should say, for the last year or two. Yes. Uh, we've had a change of government in the province uh, from the Liberal Party to the New Democrat Party. How have these changes affected your relationship between governments? Uh, so when the Liberals left office working on X, Y, and Z policy, then moving into the NDP government, carrying on what was worked on by the Liberals, how has that changed your, your relationship with them? And how, how has it gotten easier? Has it gotten more difficult to deal with them? Uh, well, when we first tried to get meetings uh, last fall with all the resource uh, ministries in uh, Victoria, um, we actually only wound up with one meeting. And um, it seemed to fall on, on deaf ears. They, they couldn't get organized to, to get us meetings uh, with the different ministries. Um, but what we did is um, we actually... Um, involved the uh, the critics from the liberal side of the government and then all of a sudden we were inundated with um, with meetings when we hit Victoria I think uh, we had uh, over seven or eight different uh, different meetings once once we landed down there so basically what we see is um, fortunately when the government changed they kept most of the um, most of their uh, Deputy ministers and assistant deputy ministers, some of them uh, changed either from environment or mines. They shuffled them around a little bit, but they kept people um, in the places so they knew what they were doing. So basically, um, we're dealing with the same bureaucrats in there. So even though that um, the power has changed um, in the House, we're still dealing with um, the, the same bureaucrats. One of... Uh, I, I... I'm looking at the, the change in those governments, and we know that the, the NDP has a minority in power, uh, and the, the Green Party has basically pushed them into power by aligning with them. Uh, there's a number of different changes going on right now in other industries, such as oil and gas. There's pipelines that are being built. Uh, they got the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which everybody's heard about the protests going on in, in BC, uh, and it's 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 getting heated and it's getting heated fast do you see any of those issues from the pipelines and the environmental concerns spilling over into the mining industry in bc um well recently when i was um down in vancouver um the cma and the atlan plaster mining association were actually attend to uh, a meeting and this is the first time we met and there's uh, a first nations energy and mining council that's a uh, here in the province, um, because both of our associations have excellent working relationships with our First Nations, um, they asked us to, to come down and um, open up dialogue with them. Uh, at the meeting, we actually discussed uh, the environmental groups and how they falsely said that they had First Nations interests behind them. Um, the uh, First Nation, um, or FNEMC, said that these groups do not have their backings, they do not have their interests at heart, and that um, their group is actually pro-resource. 
they just want to have input on policy and regulations, and they would like to have some sort of small share in the resources. Um, government, I think, has dealt with um, most of the mining is issues with the code review and other regu regulation and policy changes that are now before us. Um, I think they've pretty much taken the wind out of the sails for the environmentalists for the time being. Uh, the CMA was recently gifted a drone so we can produce videos showing how environmentally and socially responsible we are. We actually plan on making some of those videos this year and possibly releasing them next year so we can try and gain back some of our social license. I remember you talking to me about that not too long ago. You were telling me about uh, this new program you're putting together. Um, and it, it does seem like something that is, is going to put a lot of weight behind what's done and... and, and reclamation repairing the the ground after the mining has, has completed which is always something that's been a sore point with with a lot of people is a lot of people they, they get the wrong impression about what goes on they think that people go out there they strip mine the land and then they leave and everything is left as is and nothing is ever done about it and that may be the case with a few bad operators uh, but for the most part the reclamation is done tens of thousands if not hundreds of thousands of dollars is spent putting that land back to the way it was and and it's documented. It's sent off to the to the governments. Uh, it's 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 reviewed. It's approved. And in many cases, a lot of damage that was done in the past, prior to uh, the more recent mining operations, is repaired. Uh, so mining that took place during the gold rush, for example, a lot of that stuff gets cleaned up. Uh, a lot of the old equipment that's left behind is removed. And a lot of people don't see that side of it. They just see the bad that's in the news. So it's actually really good to see that there's a program coming out where you guys are putting together some some materials, some videos, and, and documentation for not only the, the environmentalists, but the, the other industries as well to see what we can do as, as an organization and as an industry to make sure that we're being environmentally responsible as well as profitable at the same time. Yes. Are there any other organizations out there that the, uh, the CMA is working with to achieve these goals? Uh, well, actually, uh, I happen to be a director of what's called the BC Placer Mining uh, Association. Uh, it's an umbrella group of all the uh, placer associations uh, in the province. Um, we only meet once a year at our AGM. Uh, we usually meet in Kamloops. And um, I also work with the other placer mining associations, um, and we're extremely close with the, um, with the Atlan group. Um, basically, the Caribou region and the Atlant um, regions um, have the, you know, the, the larger concentrations of placer operations. And, of course, the Atlant group, um, they've got some really big mines up there. Uh, Randy Miller, he's actually been the, the past president of their association for over 22 years. So he's just uh, got, uh, got a wealth of information on dealings with government. Um, Generally, every time I go down to Vancouver, I drop in at the office at um, AMA BC, and they represent the mineral exploration end. Um, they're really professional, and they offer some really sound advice um, in dealings when we're working with government. And uh, we've also, uh, on my last trip down, I um, contacted the BC Stone, Sand, and Gravel Association, and um, we've actually... Uh, started a, a behind-the-scenes alliance uh, with their group. Um, we've got um, so many um, things that are very similar, and they also believe in approaching government with the same attitude that we have. We approach them with issues and solutions 
do you think the best course of action would be for a prospector to take in order to have their voices heard as well? Uh, well, simply just join your uh, local plaster associations, uh, attend any meetings that you can, and um, if called upon, write any letters when to you know when asked to do so. Uh, the more voices we have behind our associations, the stronger our voice. We're actually hoping that someone will take on starting a new association up in the Mackenzie area. Uh, the Prince George uh, Mining Office asked the CMA if uh, we would go up there, but it's, um, it's just too far for us to deal with. And so we would, um, you know, we're just volunteers. So we've been uh, approaching a few people to try and start an association that will uh, represent that area, and then that way the entire province will be covered. That sounds fantastic. If there's anybody out there that does want to get in touch with Richard uh, and the Caribou Mining Association, perhaps about starting that new association or getting involved in a new association in Mackenzie, um, how, how do they get in touch with you? Okay, well, there's a couple avenues. Of course, we have our Facebook um, page. It's just um, Caribou Mining Association, or you can email us at Association at hotmail.com. Excellent. Richard, I'd like to thank you very much for being on the show today. Um, website for the Caribou Mining Association is caribouminingassociation.com. Uh, if you uh, would like, Richard, I'd like, like to have you back on the show in the future and see how these changes have, have, uh, have come to fruition and, and what we've been able to do to, to manage them. Okay, thanks, guys. Great, Justin. Have a good day. That's all for today's show. Thanks for tuning in, and don't forget to please get involved in your local prospecting or mining association. They work hard at protecting the rights of prospectors by lobbying government agencies and providing input on regulation before those without experience change it on our behalf. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and sorry about the audio issues we faced. They will be cleared up before the next episode is released, I can promise you that. And check back often to hear the latest episodes and interviews. Please like and share the Gold Prospecting Network Facebook page with your fellow prospectors and sign up for the newsletter at goldprospectingnetwork.com to get the inside scoop on future guests before they're even recorded. Until next time, keep the gold pans wet and don't let the color escape.